So if you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 22. We'll be in Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through verse 46. Luke 22, verse 39 through verse 46. And if you don't have your Bible, that's not a problem. We will have it on the screen for you, and you can follow along that way. The title of my sermon today is The Deep Breath Before the Plunge. As my good buddy Ian in the back noted to me before service, uh, for those of you who are fans of Lord of the Rings here, you might recognize this quote. Um, you might recognize it differently from the books to the movies, so I've been told. But in the movies, this is a quote by Gandalf. As Gandalf and the Hobbit Pippin are standing on a balcony in uh, the city of Minas Tirith, the great city of Gondor, and they are standing on the eve of battle. The great battle that is about to be waged in Middle-earth is about to take place at Gondor. And in this moment, we have Pippin and, and Gandalf, after all the preparations have been made for battle, after everything that has been done, that can be done, has been done, now is the time when Pippin, Gandalf, and the rest of the city have to sit and wait for the battle to come. And there's a time as, as Gandalf and Pippin are there on the balcony and they're having this moment as they are waiting for this terrifying, terrible moment to come. Pippin steps out onto the balcony and looks at the dark sky that is overshadowing them. The sun is hidden, the stars are gone. And Pippin makes an observation. He says, it's so quiet. And Gandalf's response to Pippin as they are standing on the eve of battle is, that it is the deep breath before the plunge. Pippin and, and Gandalf find themselves here standing on the edge of the precipice, standing ready for war that is upon them. And there is a great sense of fear, a great sense of anxiety. There is a hush, a quiet in this moment. And it's a, a bit of a scary moment to the point at which Pippin says, I don't want to go into battle, but waiting for one that I can't avoid is even worse. Because this is the place that, as Gandalf says, this is where the hammer will fall the hardest, is at Gondor. This is the point at which the great battle will find its climax, and they are now standing on the verge of that great battle. And it reminds me of our text today where we see Jesus and his disciples on the verge of one of the most tragic things that has ever happened in the history of the world, one of the most terrible uh, events that has ever occurred is right before them. These are the, the very hours before Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion, and we are given a glimpse into this scene. We are given a picture by the gospel writers of what exactly Jesus is doing in this moment, what he and his disciples are doing. And there's a lot that we can learn from this scene. So I'm going to read for us from Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46, if you would follow along with me. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, 
remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask today that as we read and as we study and as we uh, seek to understand Luke chapter 22, that you would enlighten our hearts, open our eyes to be able to see and understand what your word has, has told us, what you would have us to see, what you would have us to hear. Lord, I pray that you would use me as your vessel to preach the word, to preach your word, Lord, not my own, not uh, my own ideas, but that which you would have our church to hear today. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So I think there are, there are four things, and these are going to be my four points for my sermon today, that we, can, uh, that we can learn from this story, from this time when Jesus and his disciples are standing on the edge of the very uh, betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion of Jesus. There are four things that I think we can draw from this text. We can see the Savior's example. We can see the Savior's request. We see the Savior's agony. Then we also see the disciples' sorrow. And I want to outline for us each of, these, uh, each of these various things that we can see and draw from the text and see how it is that these things apply to us as Christians today and what we can learn from this text. So first I want to start with the Savior's example. We see here in this scene Jesus setting for us an example. Jesus knows full well what is about to happen to him this evening. This very night, the hour of his betrayal, his arrest, is so close at hand, and Jesus is well aware of it. And in these moments, right before he faces this terrible ordeal, Jesus desires to do one thing and one thing only, and that is that he goes to his Father in prayer. Jesus goes to a place that he has most likely likely frequented quite often. In fact, it says in the text that it was his custom to go to this place. Jesus spends the evening before he is delivered to be crucified in prayer alone. Yes, his disciples were in the garden, and yes, three of them were were merely a stone's throw away, but by and large, Jesus took himself away from everyone, away from the crowd, in order to be alone in prayer with the Father. And this is very instructive for believers today, and how we react, and how we uh, respond to times of trial. Jesus gives for us the example of what it is that believers are to do. Now, I hesitate to use the phrase or to say that Jesus is our example. And the reason I hesitate to say that is frankly because many times in churches today and the way the, the, the gospels are taught is that in many churches, Jesus is limited to merely an example. And I think there is a risk in doing that. I think there is a risk in and looking to Jesus simply as our example when the gospel would have us see that Jesus is much more than just our example, but he is certainly not less, right? Jesus is the great example for us to implement, the great example for us to seek to follow. And so with that, that risk in mind, with 
recognizing that as a possibility, I do think that we ought to learn from Jesus' example here regarding the proper response to adversity. Because Jesus' response to adversity is not the natural human response. The natural human response to adversity is to respond with anger or to respond with despair, much like the disciples do in our text today, or to respond with self-pity, or maybe even to respond by gritting our teeth, digging our heels in, and relying on our own strength, just like Peter did last week when he boldly declared that he would never betray Christ. He said, even if all the other's disciples betray you, I will remain. And yet we know how that works out for Peter. Those are natural human responses to adversity, but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus offers for us an alternative, something different than what our human nature would lead us to. None of these things should be our first response. When faced with suffering, when faced with hard times, when faced with trials, we ought first to go in prayer before the Lord. In actuality, we ought to go to the Lord in prayer frequently and in all circumstances of life, right? After all, Jesus did not just turn to the Lord in prayer in hard times. He did not merely go to the Garden of Gethsemane in times when things were really dire or he was really stressed or times were really bad. The text indicates for us that Jesus communed with the Father regularly. It's regularly, it says his, what, this was his custom to go to this place. In fact, some scholars believe the reason Luke doesn't name the place the Garden of Gethsemane is because it was implied. It was the place Jesus went. It was the place on the Mount of Olives where Jesus would go and pray, and he did so regularly. Which leads us to the conclusion that Jesus prayed frequently. It also points us to the fact that Jesus was intentional with his prayers. Because Jesus certainly could have prayed from anywhere. He could have prayed these, the same prayer he prayed in the garden. He could have prayed in the upper room. He could have prayed from wherever he happened to be at the moment. And the Lord would have heard him. But what we see is that Jesus saw value in setting aside specific time. Setting aside a specific place where he might go and he might pray, going to a secluded place set aside at a scheduled time when he might go and pray both with frequency but also with intentionality. How many of us are this intentional with our prayer lives? I can tell you honestly, I am not. If someone were to ask me, what's the place where you go to be alone and to pray? I would have a hard time coming up with that place because I don't have one. Because my prayer life isn't the way it should be. It isn't the way Christ's prayer life was. Sometimes we rely so heavily on the fact that we are uh, able to enter into the throne room of God and pray at any time, and we have no mediator between us and him that the veil has been torn into, and all of that is true, but sometimes that leads us to the conclusion that we don't need to be intentional about prayer. I can nonchalant wherever I am pray. I don't have to set aside specific time or go to a place where I'm alone or, or be intentional about it. I can just flippantly pray whenever I want. And I think that there's a danger in that. I think we lose something when we do that. And I certainly think we're not imitating Christ when we do that. Not that we shouldn't pray when we're driving in our car. Not that we shouldn't pray when we're going about our daily tasks or before we eat or before bed. But that specifically, it is good and healthy and right. And the example Christ gives us to take time set aside, 
to have a place where we can go and be alone with the Father, where we can quiet our spirit, where we can centralize our focus. It doesn't have to be a garden. You don't have to go into a garden to pray. But it does mean that we ought to consider how we can be intentional with our prayer. Because for believers, we need to see that if Jesus sounds such great value, such a high importance on going to the Lord intentionally in prayer, then how much more is it valuable to us as sinful fallen human beings? How much more do we need to go to the Lord in prayer than Jesus? Because to be honest, in, in most of the times when I counsel people who are struggling with spiritual disciplines, who are struggling with doubt, who are struggling with all these various things, one of my first questions to them is almost always, are you praying? What is your prayer life like? And most of them, like most of us here in this room today, would say, it's not what it should be. It's not. You know, I've, I've recently been having some, some back pain in my lower back. And I've discovered these stretches that are glorious in relieving my back pain. In fact, just doing these stretches twice a day for a few days was, it was like magic. It cured my back pain and it was gone. And I was so disciplined about doing these stretches. I'm like, man, if these are going to help and I've got the pain, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do them twice a day regularly, the full like 10 seconds, you know, not going to eight like, you know, we want to do sometimes. We're doing the full stretch. And what's amazing is that it helped. It had a significant impact. And what almost everyone, every professional or person who's done this before would say is, keep doing those stretches. You should keep doing them twice a day. Keep up with that discipline. And guess what? You won't struggle as much with back pain. But what do I do? Back pain's gone. Stretches are gone. I don't need them anymore, right? And that's so often what we do with our prayers. We pray to the Lord. We go to him in times whenever we are really in need of prayer, in times when we're really upset, in times when we feel like, the world is out to get us. And then whenever things seem okay, the burden's lifted, the weight is gone, the prayers cease. Our intentionality is lacking in those times. And I think we need to learn from the example of Jesus that we need to go with frequency and with intentionality to the Lord our Father in prayer. Second, we see the Savior's request, point number two. And in his request, we can, we can highlight three aspects of his request and learn from them. Number one, the motivation of Jesus' request. Jesus knew exactly what was in store for him in the hours ahead. And he knew that it was going to be terrible. It would be perfectly reasonable to think that Jesus, as a man, as a human being, must have been nervous, must have been uh, stressed about what was in store. In fact, we see from our text today that he was stressed that he was under a lot of strain, a lot of pressure, and he's human. It's natural that he, would, that he would be that way. But to be honest, I don't know, and I don't think any of us can, can say truly and, and exactly and perfectly why Jesus made this request to the Lord. Was he afraid? I don't know. Was he anxious? I don't know. What does it mean that there is a request being made within the Godhead from the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, to the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. I don't know. I don't understand it fully. John MacArthur proposes the idea that Jesus recoiled at the idea of taking on humanity's sin, not because he was afraid or because he was weak, but rather because he was holy. That Jesus' holiness meant 
that the appropriate response was for him to recoil from sin and corruption. And that may very well be the case. Certainly, that would be a proper and appropriate response for a holy God to recoil from corruption and sin. But honestly, this largely speaks to a mystery within the Godhead. But one thing I do know, even though I don't know fully the answer as to why Jesus would pray this prayer, what his motivation was, I know that it is a clear display of what Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 teaches, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. This is a clear representation of that. Lest anyone say God, Jesus being God doesn't know what it's like, simply look at Jesus in the garden and the agony that he endured and the prayer that he prayed to the Father. But then this leads us to the second thing we can see in his request is the submission within the request. Of course, Jesus in his request does not assume the granting of his request. And if anyone had the right to assume their request would be granted, is it not Jesus Christ? And yet he doesn't. Jesus submits, and in his submission, after making his request, says, as we should in all circumstances, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus dramatically displaying what submission looks like, that even though he knows what is in store for him, and he wishes that it wouldn't come to pass, and knows it will, he submits to that. And then the third thing we see is the outcome of the acceptance of this. The acceptance of the outcome of what the Lord brings about. That Jesus' submission goes to the fullest and that he accepts the outcome of his request. And what is the outcome of his request? It is denied. And Jesus, in his submission to the Father, accepts the outcome and he follows the will of the Father and he follows it fully. And we know this beyond a shadow of a doubt because he ended up on the cross. He did not waver in his obedience to the Lord and his submission to the Lord, his acceptance of the refusal of his request. Even in these last moments before Jesus is arrested and killed, Satan is tempting him, tempting him to reject God's answer to his prayer, tempting him to reject God's plan of salvation. But Jesus does not waver in his commitment to God's plan. He does not waver in his commitment to what the Lord has willed. But we are provided in this moment a, a picture, a picture of God's love and his care for his son. Even as he denies Jesus' request, Jesus' request was denied, but he was not abandoned. God denied Jesus' request, but did not abandon him, even though it might have felt like it. For in this time of agony, agony, what does God do? God sends an angel to minister to him and to strengthen him. Even when it seems that the Lord has turned his back on us by denying our request, we can trust that he has not abandoned us. He has not left us and he will strengthen us by his power. We, you remember last week what Jesus said to Peter and the disciples. He has said, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The Lord will keep us. He has not abandoned us and he will not abandon us no matter what the situation that may come. The third point and the third thing that we can see is we see the Savior's agony. 
Our text says in verse 44 that being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The picture here that Luke gives us of Jesus is not one that we are very comfortable with. It's not one that we like to put into our mind. We don't really like to think of Christ the way he is actually described here and in the Gospels in this moment as a man crying out in anguish. As the other Gospel writers say that Jesus fell flat on his face and wept. And this is true for various reasons, I think. I think it's true because it, it feels more like a defeat, maybe, than rather a victorious Savior, what we prefer to think of, how we prefer to picture Christ. It looks more like weakness than we would like. I think for some, maybe thinking of Jesus in, the, in this way is not pleasant because it feels undignified to picture Jesus collapsed on the ground, face down, weeping and crying out in anguish. It's undignified. It's not something we like to picture him. And I think by and, large, by, by, and maybe in part, our, our idea of this is influenced by the way we see Jesus pictured in, in pictures of him praying in the garden. If you've ever seen one of these pictures, I think this gets a little bit to maybe the danger of, of images of Christ, right? Because we've seen these pictures of Jesus where he's in the garden and he's, you know, like the Pantene hair model where his hair is thick and flowing and his face has that pretty halo around it and he's like looking up to God the Father and it's just so peaceful and sweet and dignified and we like that, right? We like to picture Christ that way. But that's not the way that the gospel writers would have us picture Christ. They would have us see him lying face down in the dirt, covered in sweat, drenched in blood, crying out with yells and cries of anguish. This is the actual picture we're getting. We need to be careful that our perspective on Jesus, on his life and his ministry and his death come from the words of scripture rather than misleading man-made images or even our own images that we've concocted in our mind, we need to be informed by scripture on what is actually taking place here. Luke is the only gospel writer to include the details that Jesus is being ministered to by an angel and that he is sweating drops of blood. And I think Luke does this because I think we're intended by the Holy Spirit to see the anguish and to see the suffering of Christ, that he is about to drink the cup of God's wrath. Luke wants us to know just exactly how ugly and how painful and how awful this scene is to watch. I think it's important. I think it's even necessary for us to see Jesus in this way. And I think it's necessary because it causes us to see the ugliness and the seriousness and the disgusting nature of sin. Because this is the description of a man who was about to have the sins of the world imputed to him. And he felt it. It was the knowledge of what he was about to endure for sin that caused him such great anguish. It's the only explanation as to why Jesus would be in such anguish. The depiction of Christ speaks to the disgusting nature of sin that we ought not to miss. Here now is the time when we can counter the fear I expressed earlier of simply viewing Christ as our example simply viewing his life and death as an example for us to follow because we need rightly and emphatically to insist 
that Jesus' main purpose here on this earth was not to set an example, but was to serve as a substitute, to serve as our substitute. Because the pain and the anguish that Jesus is feeling here in the garden, he's feeling because he is about to take our sin. He's about to take our sin, impute it to him, feel the wrath of God, drink the cup. And this is the response it causes in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our iniquity is laid on Christ. That is what causes him this anguish. J.C. Ryle says of this passage, he says, It was the enormous weight of these iniquities which made him suffer such agony. It was the sense of a world's guilt pressing down on him which made even the eternal Son of God sweat great drops of blood and called from him strong crying and tears. The cause of Christ's agony was man's sin, end quote. Jesus took on the sins of the world in his death on the cross. This is not an example for us to imitate. Indeed, we can't imitate that example. We could never pay for our own sins, let alone the sins of the world. It is not an example for us to imitate. It is a truth for us to cling to. And it is a reality that should affect the way we live when we see Jesus in this way. When we see the agony that Jesus was experiencing, it ought to cause us great pause when we consider our own sin. We live in the reality of grace and forgiveness of sin that is available for us in Christ Jesus. And for that, we say amen. And that is a glorious place to live. But we do not live in this place because our sin was forgotten or ignored or swept under the rug. We live in this reality because Jesus took it on himself and paid the price for our sin, felt the weight of our sin. How can we read this passage, see Christ's agony that he experienced for sin, and then think so lightly of the sin in our very lives? Because we do. It is so easy for us to brush our own sin under the rug, to think of it as normal, to justify it. It's normal to lust after women. All guys do it. It's not that big a deal. It's normal to gossip about other people. That's a part of social living. It's so easy for us to brush under the rug our sin and fail to see what it was that Christ suffered for our sin. This picture of Christ's agony ought to cause us to see the seriousness of our sin and to legit go to war against it in the spirit. Jesus' suffering started before he went to the cross, even before he was arrested. The weight of what he was about to endure was such that even here in the garden, before any real action had begun, Jesus was feeling the weight of sin and it was heavy. The fourth thing that we see in our text is the sorrow of the disciples, the disciples' sorrow. We are given an example by the disciples as well, and it's not really a very good example, but it is an example that gives us hope. We are told that while the Lord was dealing with such great agony as he was pouring his heart out before the Father, that his disciples were falling asleep despite the direct instruction from Christ to stay awake and to pray that they would not fall into temptation. 
Just earlier that very night, Peter and the other disciples were saying so boldly, so pridefully, that they would never abandon Jesus, that they would never fall away. No, Lord, we would never. They all proclaimed with boldness that they were willing even to die for Christ, and yet now we see their true strength on display. That here, in the hour when Christ was about to face the cup of God's wrath, even his disciples failed to stand by him. Jesus is truly forsaken by all. The Gospels of Matthew and Mark insert a phrase here in their version of the passage uh, that I think demonstrates uh, is demonstrated in the disciples where, where Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. These 11 disciples, for all their talk, all their desire to obey and to serve Jesus, could not even stay awake and pray as Jesus had commanded them to do. And this is indicative of all believers. This is all of us. We, like the disciples, are prone to failure because of our flesh. The text informs us that it is not merely that the disciples were tired, not merely that they were exhausted from being up most of the night that caused them to fall asleep, but the text says that they were sleeping for sorrow, which would probably indicate the disciples felt sorrow. They felt despair for what was about to happen, for what was about to go down, that the Lord had told them, each and every one of you will be scattered, that you will turn your back on me. And in despair, they simply gave in to the exhaustion. And I think we're much more like the disciples than we would care to admit. No matter how much resolve we have, no matter how often, so, no matter how, so no matter how strong we think we are, we so often give in to the flesh, which ultimately leads us to despair. That's the only place giving into the flesh will ever lead, despite the lies of Satan. To give into the flesh leads only to despair, but Jesus knows this is going to happen. Jesus knows the pain and the, and the sorrow that the disciples are about to feel and experience in the coming days, and he offers them hope in the book of John, chapter 16, verses 20 through 22, where Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. This is a great hope that Jesus gives to these disciples who have given into the flesh, who have fallen into despair, who have fallen into sorrow, and there is more to come. Jesus says, in that sorrow, it is not the end. Because imagine the, the anguish and the pain that is experienced from a woman in childbirth. It is a great pain. It is a great anguish. But no woman who is holding her baby after her childbirth is sitting there going, man, I will never do that again. This is terrible. I can't believe this. No, what is being experienced in that moment is the joy of holding this newborn baby in her arms. We can gain hope from the disciples and from their bad example because through it we know that even the greatest of saints fail and fall into despair and into sorrow. But even in that, the Lord is faithful to bring joy and restoration 
to each of them as he does and to each of us. When we fall into sorrow, when we fall into despair, when we give into the flesh, joy and restoration is ours in Christ Jesus. When we feel the weight of sin in our lives, we're to follow the example of Christ and go before the Father in prayer. Remember that the text says that Jesus, being in agony, prayed more earnestly. The only right reaction to sorrow and to pain and to adversity caused by whatever circumstances we find ourselves in is to pray all the more earnestly, to go before the Father in prayer. But we do so. We go before the Father in prayer. We follow Jesus' example in light of what Jesus did for us and taking on the agony and taking on the consequences for sin. There is no more wrath left for believers to drink because Christ drank the whole cup of God's wrath on the cross down to the very last drop. And now we live in that reality, the reality that the wrath of God has been taken in Christ Jesus for us. We live in the reality that in Christ our iniquities are forgiven and our wounds are, we are healed by his wounds. And this reality ought to infiltrate every aspect of our lives, especially the way that we view our sin. When we see the suffering of Christ, when we see the agony he endured, we ought to recognize the horrific and disgusting nature of our sin, and we ought to flee from it as fast as we can. And when we see the risen Christ, we see a reminder that sin's curse has been broken, that death no longer binds us, and that we can boldly approach the throne of grace freely and find mercy and grace and forgiveness, even though we know our sin, even though we see the agony that sin causes, even though we know our wickedness and our corruption, we have been granted access to grace in Christ Jesus by what he has done. Church family, Jesus knows that we're gonna fail. He knows we're gonna give in to the flesh. He knows that we will have sorrow. Yet, though we may have sorrow in this life, it is only for a moment, for in Christ's resurrection, we are guaranteed a joy that will last forever. For if he has experienced a resurrection, so we also will experience a resurrection like his. Let us take hope in that. In our sorrow, in our failing, in our fleshly giving into, let us take hope in the fact that in Jesus we have joy to the fullest. Let's pray.